Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I also hope that it challenges you. And I want you to know that we are in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment from Jesus to love God and to love people. And so I hope more than anything that this encourages you to love God and to love the people around you in a more holistic way. I also hope that you have some people around you to talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we would love to see you at one of our Sunday gatherings or in one of our Restore groups. You can get all that information on our website at RestoreAustin.org. I hope you enjoy the message. Thanks. Good morning. My name is John. Yeah, you can bring the table up. Thanks, Jordan. I am um, one of the pastors here at Restore, the community pastor. And I'll be the pastor at Moon Tower Church, the church we're planning later this year on the campus of the University of Texas, but it's good to see you guys. You, you good? Excited about the Super Bowl tonight? All right, raise your hand. Uh, raise your hand if you think the Chiefs are going to win. Chiefs? Raise your hand if you think the 49ers are going to win. Raise your hand if you couldn't care less. You're just there for the commercials and the food, right? All right. Well, it's good to be here. Hey, this comes to no surprise, or to, to no one in this room, it's no surprise that we live in a moment, and we live in a time of stark polarities void of any nuance. All you have to do is kind of look at the low-hanging fruit of politics to see that this is true. Uh, The next nine months leading up to the election is going to be a lot of fun, right? (laughs) Because if you are a Republican, then you see all Democrats as looking the same, believing the exact same thing. You're 100% right. They're 100% wrong. Or if you're a Democrat, you look at all Republicans and say they all believe the same thing. They all look the same way. You are 100% right, and they are 100% wrong. We increasingly crave polarity and loathe nuance. And this is especially true when it comes to people. We want everyone to be able to fit in our little box that we create for them, create, uh, create for them because it makes life easier for us. Everything is black and white with no room for gray. And the church is guilty of this too. We do the same thing with Jesus. You have one camp over here that preaches this message of a God who is filled with hate and who is filled with wrath and who is filled with judgment. And in this camp, you have people who only focus on how sinful others are and how much God hates sin. And by sin, they usually mean people who look and act differently than they do. But there's another camp that only preaches this message of a God of love. And they kind of sanitize, they kind of whitewash Jesus And they preach this message of a Jesus that never gets angry, a Jesus that never judges anyone, or a Jesus that never judges anything. They paint this picture of this kind of fluffy, warm, fuzzy Jesus. And the danger in the modern American church is that we're tempted to leverage this. We work hard to make Jesus attractive depending on whichever camp that we're in. And we play to our audience, desperate to kind of expand our small kingdoms and add people to our team. The problem is, is that it's not that simple. Academy Award winning director Ridley Scott had this to say, life isn't black and white. It's a million gray areas, don't you find? I love that quote. So you walked in here today, and you probably have some polarized view of who Jesus is. You may be in one camp that sees Jesus and God as filled with wrath and is filled with judgment and hate, or maybe you're in the other camp and you only see this warm, fuzzy picture of a loving Jesus. And what we'll discover is that it's not black and white, but it's far more nuanced than that, and there's so much more gray to the story of Jesus. So today, 
In a culture where there's no room for gray, we're going to examine and explore some of the gray areas of Jesus' life. Together, we're going to examine some of the difficult aspects of Jesus' life and the difficult things that he calls us to do. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's a gospel account of Jesus' life. And let me kind of frame up the scene here before we begin. So Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, has just come out of a confrontation with some of the religious leaders of his day. These people were called Pharisees. And these religious leaders, after this confrontation, are kind of waiting in the margins, waiting in the wings. They are the they that this verse is referring to. Let's see what happens. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, this is Jesus, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they, the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Let's pause there. The Sabbath command comes up over and over again in the Torah. The Torah is the first five, or they are the first five books of the Old Testament, central to the the lives of the Jewish people of Jesus' day, and central to the lives of the Jewish people of our day is the Torah. Everyone say Torah. Good. The goal for the Jews of Jesus' day and ours today was to live the Torah. Jesus, in fact, said, I didn't come to replace the Torah or to get rid of the Torah, but to put it on display for you, to show you what it looks like when it's lived down to the very last punctuation mark. Now, the Torah commanded, it's one of 613 commands, that you are supposed to observe the Sabbath. You are to do no work on the Sabbath day, which would have been Saturday in Jesus' time. But this raised all kinds of questions because the rabbis of Jesus' day had different translations of the Torah. And one rabbi might say that this is work and this is not work. And there might be another rabbi that says, no, 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 this is work and this is not work. Another rabbi or each rabbi had a set of particular rules that they called their yoke. And this yoke was an image you can see here on the screen or it was a metaphor used in Jesus' day and all throughout scripture. Uh, This yoke would be this wooden device that would harness cattle or oxen together so that they could uh, be uh, harnessed and directed in in, in a similar direction to plow a field or whatever. So a rabbi's yoke would kind of harness his students, his followers, teachers, or his uh, followers uh, together to to follow after his teaching wherever that would lead him. So every rabbi had a yoke, and to follow a rabbi meant that you followed their yoke, this list of what you could and what you couldn't do, this list of how they interpreted the Torah. The problem was the yokes of many of these rabbis were founded in their personal preference and not necessarily what the Scripture had uh, had to say. And what they found is that these laws, their interpretations often contradicted one another. And this is what we see here in Mark chapter 3. Because we have this law to observe the Sabbath in Jesus' day that was birthed out of the Torah, there was also this command in the Torah that said you were supposed to um, preserve and to protect life wherever necessary. So you're supposed to preserve and protect life, but you're also commanded not to work on the Sabbath. And in this moment, these two things are at odds. So the rabbis would use this hypothetical situation to kind of wrestle through this question. They would ask this question, what do you do when your donkey falls into a hole on the Sabbath? A question many of us have faced in this room, I imagine. What do you do when your donkey falls into a hole on the Sabbath? Because depending on which rabbi you followed, you may have a different answer than the person next to you. Because you're commanded to preserve and to save life, 
But if you were to reach into the hole and pull the donkey out of the hole, you're doing work on the Sabbath. So these things are at odds. What happens when two commands are in the same place at the same time? The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day said that what you had to do, depending on your yoke, how you interpreted the Old Testament, the Torah, you had to pick which command was weightier and which was lighter. So do you break the Sabbath to fulfill this command to preserve life, or do you do the opposite? This is what we call ethics today. What do you do when two two things seem to contradict each other? Some rabbis would say you don't save life. You always observe the, the Sabbath. Other rabbis would have a yoke that said, no, 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 you always save life, even if it means breaking the Sabbath. And this is the discussion that Jesus wades into at the beginning of Mark chapter 3. It's one of the eight great debates of Jesus' day, and it's an incredibly controversial issue. Verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. What will Jesus do? Because if he heals this man, he's breaking the Sabbath. But if he doesn't heal this man, then he's not protecting and saving life. Verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Tells this man to stand up and come to the front and center. Is Jesus looking for a row here? Is he creating a bit of controversy here? Absolutely he is. And listen to what he says in verse 4. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. Jesus puts this man front and center, and he says, pick your side. Pick your side. He places flesh and blood in front of them to expose the sickness of their yokes. And their hearts are exposed for what they are. They hate it, and they were mad. The next verse says this, but they were, what's it say? silent. They're silent. They're angry. They have this little kingdom, these little systems they're trying to protect. And Jesus has them in a corner here in this moment, and they won't admit it. They're so hard-hearted, so opposed to Jesus and what he was doing that they won't answer the most basic question, which is better, to heal or not to heal? Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. Jesus is angry. Today, I want to talk about a Jesus who gets angry. Now, for some of us, we may have a flannel graph image of Jesus in our mind with Clairol and his blonde flowing hair and holding a little lamb with no dirt on his white bathrobe. We're talking about the other Jesus today. We're talking about the real Jesus, a Jesus who gets angry. This word anger that's translated here out of the Greek is the Greek word orge. Say orge. Orge, that was somewhat enthusiastic. I'll give you that. Orge, I think it may be where we get the word ogre from. Maybe not. I just made it up. It sounds good. We'll go with it, okay? Orge. And when Aristotle was looking at the etymology behind this word, he said orge is the the combination of desire mixed with grief. Desire mixed with grief. And here we see with Jesus that he so desperately wants them to get it, but they don't, and his heart is grieved by the hardness of their hearts. This is a, ah, you're breaking my heart kind of anger. 
It's also in the aorist tense, which I know you find really exciting, as do I. But it's important for us to understand. It's crucial to understand what Jesus is talking about here. This is not the kind of anger that's boiling and simmering and just kind of sits below the surface that Jesus carries with him from place to place that's incited by very small, petty, and selfish things. This is an anger that comes on in a moment. Jesus acts on it, and then it passes, and he moves along. Jesus sees this scene He sees this injustice, he sees this oppressive system, and he responds with anger. I want to talk about Jesus, and I want to talk about a God who gets angry. Keep your place in Mark, and let's flip to the left in our Bible. Go to the Old Testament, and we're going to go to the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 5. In Amos chapter 5, and throughout the Old Testament, and throughout Scripture, we find a divine anger. And I want to take a moment to reflect on this. Often in trying to articulate a God of love, we leave out a God of anger and a God of judgment. And I want to present a simple idea to us this morning. If we have a God of love, we're going to have a God that gets angry, and I want to show you why. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God is speaking through Amos to the nation of Israel, who, Amos, who is his prophet. And in chapter 5, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious people of Amos's day, the people that claim to be followers of of God, And he's talking to them about their rituals and about their church services and about their ceremonies. And listen to what God says. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. This word despise in the Hebrew, Hebrew is the word ma'as, and it means to reject. God's saying, I reject All that you're bringing to me, all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings, I reject it. It means to be fed up. It means to be exasperated. It's God simply saying, enough, enough. And he goes on to say this, in the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He's saying, your songs, your words, your offerings, they're meaningless to me. I hate them. Why is God so angry? What's got God so cranked up in this moment? Flip to the right and name us to chapter 8, verse 24. This whole book is about a God who's angry, but he's not angry at unbelievers. He's angry at believers, and let's find out why. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy. And bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will this new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? That we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff, the sweepings of wheat. So why is God so angry? Because there are these religious people who claim to follow him, who are ignoring the needy, who are ignoring the oppressed in their society, they're so obsessed with becoming wealthy that they're willing to skimp when they sell to those who are hungry. It says they're sweeping the dirt or the sweepings into their bag of wheat on the threshing floor because dirt meant that the bag would weigh more and they could make more money by ripping off those who were the most impoverished and those who were in the greatest need. Because they knew that they were starving, they knew that they were hungry, and so they would take advantage of their poverty. They said they, ex- they followed God, but they were exploiting the needy in their midst. And God's saying, stop. Stop singing your songs. Stop having your festivals. This makes me sick. This is a God who sees injustice and says, that 
is wrong. So we talk about a God who gets angry. There's a question we need to ask. Which is more disturbing, a God who gets angry or a God who can see injustice, abuse, exploitation, and not get angry? A God who can see war, a God who can see violence, a God who can see oppression, who can see rape and say, you know, that's, that's not a big deal. Keep singing your songs. Keep having your service. We get disturbed by a God who gets angry, but I find it far more disturbing to imagine a God who can see injustice and not get angry. So there's this divine anger that we see here with God and Amos, and there's this divine anger that we see with Jesus in Mark chapter 3 where they say, this is not right. Jesus sees this man and says, he needs to be healed, but the religious leaders want to prevent it. So what does his anger, what does Jesus' anger lead to? Let's go back to Mark chapter 3. I'm like you, I have anger, and I find anger to be one of life's most kind of challenging and perplexing companions. Uh, 2017, now if you know me, you know that I am a rabid Texas Longhorn fan, especially when it comes to football. And this has been a tough decade for Texas Longhorn fans when it comes to football. In 2017, we had a new coach. We had this young quarterback named Sam Ellinger. Everything was really exciting, but we were playing the USC Trojans. We were unranked. They were the number four team in the country. We were playing in California in their stadium. And so my hopes were set pretty low, which is a really dangerous thing, and I'll explain why in just a minute. So I kind of took a deep breath, and we watched the game. I was expecting us to lose, and I was expecting us to get blown out. But lo and behold, we get through the game, and then this young quarterback is leading Texas on this incredible comeback in the second half. And before I know it, the game is tied, and it goes into overtime. And after the first overtime, the game is tied again, and we're going into a second overtime. And Texas is driving to win the game. They have the ball on the one-yard line, and Sam Ellinger fumbles the ball, turns it over. USC kicks a field goal to win the game. I'll never forget this moment because I stood up. My wife said nothing because she knows me well. I stood up. I walked upstairs. I sat on the bed in my room, and I was, like, seething with anger. Like, my heart rate was 999 beats a minute. I was boiling with anger. If I was a bigger guy, I, like, would have kicked the door down or punched a hole in the wall. And I was just, I was so angry. I was so worked up. And the only thing I could find around me was a hanger. I grabbed a hanger. I slammed it on my knee and I broke a hanger. And I was sitting there in this moment, still like huffing and puffing with anger. And I looked down at my hands and I had a broken hanger in my hands over a football game. My anger over a game that I had nothing to do with led me in my incredible strength <laughs> to break a hanger. But it's interesting because when we get angry, there's like this nuclear force within you that allows you to like leap tall buildings in a single bound. Let's do a little survey here. Raise your hand. How many of you have ever gotten so angry that you've actually scared yourself like me with how angry you've gotten? Okay, okay, you can put your hands down. How many of you have gotten so angry that you've said something and as soon as the words came out of your mouth, you thought, oh no, dear God, did I actually just say that out loud? Okay, we're warming up here. How many of you have gotten so angry that you've broken something and you've sat there looking at this broken thing in your hands and wondered, how did this just happen? 
It's a fairly violent crowd we have here. It's kind of <laughs> disturbing. But you can find someone who is tired, you can find someone who is exhausted, and you give them something to be angry about. And there's this nuclear energy that kind of snaps them back to life. And anger is like a rocket fuel of energy that can give us this unbelievable stimulus in life. And the question is, in Mark chapter 3, what does Jesus do with his anger? Verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration. Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration. Jesus' anger doesn't lead to broken hangers, doesn't lead him to saying something that he later regrets. Jesus' anger leads to healing and restoration. What doesn't Jesus do in this scene? He doesn't debate scripture. He doesn't debate the Torah with these guys. There's no argument. There's no back and forth with these religious leaders. He stops talking and he acts. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is angry because their laws, the religious leader, the church of his day, their laws violated this man. But in Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees are angry because Jesus was violating their laws. Jesus' orge, his anger, leads to peace and to justice. What does your anger lead to? Does your anger increase the peace around you? Does it bring about justice? Does it bring about healing and restoration to those who need it? Jesus' anger is kind of channeled into a specific act of healing in this moment. So the problem is not our anger the problem is what our anger is towards and what we do with it. So we find, as I've said, this divine anger all throughout Scripture. When channeled in the right direction, can do incredible things. And I want to show you one more in Galatians chapter 5. You flip right in the book of Mark, you can go to Galatians. This is a letter written by a guy named Paul as he was traveling, teaching about who Jesus was and he's in the middle of this giant controversy in Galatians chapter 5 because Paul is traveling from village to village, town to town, port to port. He's sharing this message of Jesus, this message of grace, this message of mercy, this message of love, this unmerited favor that we have through Jesus. And what would happen is he would travel and he would share this message of grace and acceptance just as you are. And then there were these religious leaders that trailed behind him trying to undo everything that he had just done. Because they came from a religious tradition. They were Jewish who believed that God had commanded Abraham to have his sons circumcised on the eighth day and that they saw circumcision as being necessary for salvation. And they were undoing Paul's message. And he would go, they would go behind him and they'd say, oh, no, 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 I know Paul said that, but that's not really how it works. You need to do all the Jewish stuff in order to be Christian. So they're going after Paul, and there are these 40-year-old men in these villages, and they would say, oh, you want to believe in Jesus? Let me ask you a little question. Have you been circumcised? No. All right, we're going to have to see you at the clinic next Tuesday. We have a little procedure we want to perform on you here. And this is this giant controversy that Paul's stepping into, and Paul is furious. He is furious, and he has incredible anger toward what these people are doing because they're saying that Jesus is not enough, that you have to do this, 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 and this in order to be acceptable. And all throughout Galatians 5, Paul's kind of working up ahead of steam, and it makes its way and kind of reaches its culmination in chapter 5, verse 12. He says, I wish those who unsettle you, these agitators, 
would emasculate themselves. Whoa, easy there, big shooter. Wow. He's like, and so I'm so angry because I've been teaching this message about Jesus and love and acceptance and grace and mercy. And these guys are coming behind me and they're making me so angry that I wish they would just go ahead and do all the way and they would cut it off. Like, settle down, Paul. All right. Is Paul angry? Yes or no? Yes. What does he do with that orge? What does he do with that anger? Verse 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Earlier in the chapter, he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke. There's that yoke image again. A yoke of slavery. Paul's anger leads him to deliver a message of freedom. Paul's anger leads him to give a message of freedom. He ends up giving his life for this message because he ends up making his way to Rome and losing his life because he's so dedicated to teaching the truth of who Jesus is and what it means to be accepted and all the stuff that you don't have to do because of what's already been done for you on the cross through Jesus. His anger fuels his mission to deliver this message of freedom to the oppressed in his world. Now, we often talk about this idea of vocation and this idea of calling. Like, what am I supposed to give my life to? What's my calling in life? What's my, voc- my vocation? And often, it's interesting when you listen to that conversation, the conversation is usually around this idea of, like, what brings you joy? What brings you pleasure? What makes you happy whenever you do it? What gives you kind of warm fuzzies whenever you're engaged in it? And, like, in that, you'll find your calling. That's what you should give your life to. However, I want us to maybe consider a different question here today. When we think about our vocation, when we think about our calling, the thing that God's calling us to engage in life, maybe the question isn't so much what makes you happy and what makes you feel good. Maybe the question is what makes you angry? What, when you see it, you say that is wrong. Some people call this the idea of holy discontent. You see something, you say that is wrong. Somebody needs to step in and do something about you. And that may be the Spirit of God tapping you on the shoulder saying, hey, guess what? You are that somebody that needs to do something about it. Maybe you're a college student in this room and you have this haunting sense that maybe someday you ought to get a job. Uh, And you have the choice of, am I going to settle into the rat race or am I going to make a difference? And you may ask yourself the question, well, what do I love? What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? Maybe you should ask, what makes you angry? What makes you think someone needs to fix that? Maybe our calling and our vocation is not in what makes us feel good, but in what makes us angry. And I want to do a little experiment around this idea, and I want to look at some stats together this morning, and let's see what reading these stats kind of does to our hearts and to our soul. Number one, 2.4 billion people in the world, about one-third of the population, lack basic sanitation facilities. I've been in third-world countries where you have to step over raw sewage that pours through the street to get into someone's house. Does that make you angry? Are you okay with that? Next slide. Over 1 billion children out of 1.9 billion live in poverty, more than one out of two. And this kind of poverty is not just like they don't have the latest iPhone or the biggest television. This is like could potentially die soon kind of poverty. Next slide. More than 800 million people around the world go to bed hungry every day. 300 million are children. This isn't like haven't had three square meals. This is like haven't eaten at all that day. How's that make you feel? Next slide. Every 3.6 seconds, someone dies of hunger, and the large majority are children under the age of five. 
One, two, three. One, two, three. Next slide. A woman in North America has a 1 in 3,700 chance of dying giving birth. A woman in Sub-Saharan Africa has a 1 in 16 chance of dying giving birth. Are we okay with that? Next slide. Over 2 million children are exploited in the global commercial trade. Right now, around the world, 2 million children. Next slide. Human trafficking generates over $150 billion a year. There are people who are wealthy and who are living a life of luxury, trafficking children, young women around the world. Next slide. The average age a person enters the sex trade in the U.S. is 12 to 14 years old. Many victims are runaway girls who were sexually abused as children. What does that do to our hearts? Does that make us angry? Next slide. One person dies every 40 seconds by suicide. We've been in this room for roughly an hour. That means over the course of our meeting today, 90 people have taken their life because they were hopeless. Next slide. There are 45 million people living as slaves now, more than at any other time in human history. Next slide. One in every four slaves is a child. Next slide. In sub-Saharan Africa, one in 140 people are slave. I want to make a simple observation. We live in a world where people get angry about the things that don't matter and don't get angry about the things that do matter. Uh, Garrett Keezer wrote this book called The Enigma of Anger, and he was talking about the anger that Jesus had in Mark chapter 3, and he said this, His is the zeal of an ego identified with something larger than itself. He is not incensed over some personal insult, some small, petty thing, but by a communal sacrilege, communal sin, which he feels bound to take personally. Do we feel bound to take personally the things that Jesus and that God and the scripture calls us to take personally. Some people are looking for a fight because they're not in one. Some people break hangers over a football game because they're not in a fight. Maybe you find yourself screaming because the person in front of you waited one one millionth of a second extra to go when the light turned green. Maybe it's because you're not in a fight. Maybe tonight when you're watching the game, you find yourself wanting to hurt or maim a person in a black and white striped shirt because maybe you're not in a fight. It's hard to get off the phone with someone who says they're at the verge of taking their life and they need you to give a reason for why they should live. It's hard to get off the phone with someone like that and get angry about insignificant, petty things. Simple observation I made this week is that people who are the most engaged with the real needs of a hurting world have a sense of perspective that frees them from petty, irrational, and minor offenses. Some people are looking for a fight because they're not in one. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't spend his time complaining about the religious people. He turns his focus to this man, the person that needs help, help and healing, and he acts. Paul channels his anger to deliver a message of freedom and grace and hope. Are you looking for a fight 
because you're not in one. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us a fight. God, I pray that you would highlight in our hearts those areas that have turned cold to the injustices around the world, in our neighborhoods and globally. God, I pray that we would not push those feelings of anger away, God, but that we'd really dig into them and say, is this something that I can do something about? Father, compel us to act, compel us to move. God, may it begin today. In your name we pray, amen. So we don't want to leave you here today with just just that message. Just say, well, okay, I'm supposed to get angry. What am I supposed to do with that? Where do I start? So we have a really small, simple way for you to start. Maybe your heart was stirred when you saw some of the statistics about poverty and about the lack of clean water and all of those things that were just so heart-wrenching to consider. And we have this opportunity through the Matthew 25 challenge to take a small step to identify with the needs around the world and to act. Watch this video.